Last week, we got to see what John sees, a vision of God the Father in his throne room, reigning supreme. And four living creatures, they represent all of animated life, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And as these four living creatures that represent all of animated life were worshiping, they were joined by 24 elders representing all of God's people from all of time, gathered together. They're not just singing. He records that they fall down and worship before him. And he records that they take their crowns, the crown of glory, the, the victory that they have for being faithful unto God, and they just lay it down. They cast it down before the one true throne. And they sing, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And here we are at the very beginning of chapter 5. This is the exact same scene. It's just flowing right through from chapter 4 into 5. John sees in the right hand of God the Father a scroll. A scroll. Think of a scroll. Think of a, a rolled-up manuscript. And he describes the scroll in verse 1, as being covered with writing inside and out with seven seals. What might that be? Well, we know from history that a double inscribed scroll with seven seals describes a Roman will or contract, like your last will and testament or, or contract uh, that two parties would have, that this image would be very clearly understood by the first hearers of Revelation, of what he was talking about. And there was a little uh, information that, that I gleaned about these Roman scrolls that contained someone's will. Uh, they were used usually to use papyrus paper or vellum leather, and a well-to-do Roman, this is someone who could afford it, uh, would have their last will and testament written down, and in the presence of that writing would be the heir, that is, the person who's going to get uh, that big inheritance, the executioner, not this kind of executioner, but the one who's going to make sure that everything happens, that bills get paid, taxes get paid, make sure that all of the uh, requests of the deceased are fulfilled. And then usually there were five witnesses that were present just to make sure that everything was on the up and up. And then the last will and testament would be dictated to a secretary. And when the document was finished, it would be rolled up and each person that was a witness to this, would wrap a string and knot around the scroll, drop some wax on it, and use a signet ring or some type of marker to mark their seal on the knot, pressing their seal to show that, indeed, this is a legal binding document. So imagine, in your mind, a rolled scroll with writing inside and out and seven seals. The inside would be all of the text. The outside would be a summary of what's inside the text. Now do you see what, what John was seeing? He was seeing the scroll of the very will and testament of God the Father. This scroll resembles, in fact, I believe it is indeed, the very scroll that we see in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. The Ezekiel saw this scroll. Daniel and Isaiah also write about the scroll. If you're taking notes, mark 
Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. It, it refers to this scroll, and Ezekiel writes, quote, uh, it was filled with, quote, words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. Woe. Uh, the, the bit that Zeke could see here was about divine judgment on Israel. That's the bit that he records. And then Daniel chapter 12, if you're taking notes, and Isaiah 29, they also make reference. And they, they refer to a book, and the one thing that we know about from their references, it's a book that cannot be opened, quote, until the end of time. Cannot be opened or executed. No one can look into it. Cannot be revealed until the executioner opens it up at the end of time. I think John is seeing that same scroll in heaven. Held in the strong right hand. The right hand would be a sign of, of strength and authority in the hand of God the Father. And it contains God's will and testament for his property. And what does God own? Everything. Its content spans all the events, what, what happened and is happening from the cross of Calvary through Judgment Day. God's plan written in this sealed document. Now, we're about to, to see this plan unfold. That's why we're, you're here. Uh, we are studying the, the book of Revelation from chapter 6 onward to see what happens when the scroll is, is open and unfolded. Included inside is the outpouring of God's justice. I love that we, we, we sang just now about they'll be dancing uh, on injustice. We'll see God's justice come. We'll see judgment against the Antichrist. We'll see healing of the nations, the resurrection of the dead, the answering of the saints' prayers, and the establishment of God's kingdom. This document is the blueprint detailing the history, not only of, of the Christian church, but all of human history. And where we find ourselves in, in this time of, of history in the 21st century, we say, oh, well, the church seems to be taking a step back. We're not sure what's happening. Like, there's a bigger plan that's going on. There's more going on behind the scenes than you and I can see without unaided eyes. John's helping us see it. Listen, the opening of the scroll signifies not only the, the revealing of God's will and testament, it's actually the launch of his will. You know, it's not just a document that would be open and say, oh, well, here it is, here's the instructions, and let's check in in a few years. No, the executioner of a will would say, okay, this is the, this is the plan, Let's make it happen. For you to understand just in a different way of how significant this scroll is, let's consider for just a moment what would happen if the scroll had not been open. So those of you who've studied God's word or you've been part of the study uh, before, you think, well, no, I know in the chapters to come, it's going to be opened up and things are going to happen. Let's take a look at it. Just consider for a moment if that seal, those seven seals were never opened. What would happen? What would happen if God's plan was never executed? Chapter 6, verse 10. The blood of the martyrs would not be avenged. Chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. The prayers of the saints would go unanswered. Chapter 11, 15. The, the kingdom of the world would not become the kingdom of Christ. All of chapters 16 to 18 wouldn't happen. 
a judgment on wickedness. None of it. Chapters 19 and 20. Nothing. Jesus wouldn't come back. There'd be no hope. In chapter 21 and 22, God's greatest plan that he revealed long ago that he wanted to commune with his people. He told Moses, that's why I'm pulling these people out of of Egypt, that they will be my people and I will be their God. I will commune with them. And we have the tabernacle and we had Jesus who came, who dwelled with us, who set up his tent with us. God's plan to be with his people in a new heaven and new earth. None of that would happen if this scroll does not get opened and executed. None of the Bible's promises would be true. The meaning of life would be meaningless. I mean, there'd, be, there'd be no hope. And we're talking about existential crisis. And why would you even get up in the morning if none of this happened? What possibly good thing could you say to someone to encourage them for the new day? Did any of you work in an office that had motivational posters to motivate the staff? Uh, the best we could do is a, a hanging kitten saying, hang in there, baby. That's it. Meaningless. And so chapter, verse 1, that's all of that's in verse 1. Verse 2, a strong Angel, he's been, I don't know, pumping iron, working out with Josh, I don't know, taking some supplements. A strong, strong angel calls out, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, why would John mention that this was a strong angel? It had to be strong enough for the, that voice, that question to, to ring out to the whole cosmos, to everywhere, every corner of the universe, Who is worthy? And nothing. No response. And John's response, he weeps. Can you feel that? It's just, we read, oh, okay, we keep going. Can you feel that? He weeps because what he desperately wants to hear is the message of God's redeeming and restoring and rescuing plan. But it's inaccessible. And because it's inaccessible, that puts the people that he loves, remember John's also a pastor, he loves these people in these seven churches in the whole region, that puts them in great jeopardy. John wants answers so much that he's moved to tears. His his nose is, is running, he's sobbing. He's so emotional. He's torn up inside, he's he's anxious, he's depressed. Have you been there? Has anyone here felt that that way? This is John. This is John, Apostle John, writer of books in the Bible, plural. I mean, he, and, and he felt this much discouragement. He followed Jesus his whole adult life. He's now a, an old man. He saw Jesus rise, he saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and yet the biggest question goes unanswered, and his reaction is to cry, and he's standing there in heaven, and friends, if there's crying and weeping in heaven, let me say this, isn't it okay that there's crying in church? Is that okay 
if you're coming here today and you get teary-eyed, there's no apologies needed of what God's doing in you. You have permission to weep. He weeps because the crisis has come, but the answer is blocked. Something is missing. Something is out of reach. Have you ever been there? A circumstance, a situation, a question, a crossroad. You're like, I cannot figure this out. You know, when you come to this place, we want you to be real. You know, if Rob starts the worship service off, how are you doing today? And the hope is that you're going to smile and say, we're happy. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I come to church because I'm feeling miserable inside. How are you doing today? I'm really messed up in the head. I'm looking to encounter, have an encounter with God because I'm not, my head's not screwed on straight. Is this just me? Is this okay if you're not, if you're not okay? We bring all of our mess. We're seeing that here. Now listen, we need to be careful, listen, to identify what it is that's missing or, or what's messed up with our lives. We need, to, we need to understand what is that thing that's causing that much angst and anxiety and, and frustration? What is it that's missing? Or what question is it that you're seeking an answer for? Because how you answer that may determine whether it's meant to be answered or whether that thing that's missing is not meant to be in your life and that's actually for your best. For some of us, that's something that's missing may be for the best. Let me put it a different way. The sin that is most destructive in your life right now is the one you are most defensive about. I want this. It's so hard. Why can't I get this answer? Well, I, okay, I know there's an answer there, but a better answer. <laughs> the other answer. Okay, let's get back to, I'll stop preaching. Let's get back to preaching. John, what's going on with John? Where's his head at? John the apostle was forever changed by his relationship with Jesus. He knew Jesus intimately well. He was his best friend. He saw what Jesus completed on the cross of Calvary. He knew what it meant, and he dedicated his whole life to that effort. And that's why he's riding on an island called Patmos, because of that. But because he saw the miracles, he saw Jesus rise from the dead, he saw him ascend into heaven. He knew all of that. But in this vision, I think, this is your pastor's opinion, I think that John was transported back to a time before the cross. I think that the John had stepped into a different dimension, call it a time-space, if you will, so that he could, could feel what it was like before the scroll was unsealed. He could see it. He could, he could feel it. He could understand what it meant before Jesus lived the righteous life that no one else was capable of. John's weeping in heaven before the throne of God so that he could feel and sense and see how the Lord feels about his children and about his creation. He wept because someone needed to break the curse of sin and death for humankind. 
Uh, that's how these visions go. I mean, chapter 12, that goes back to a Christmas story of Jesus' birth. Uh, there's a collapse of time throughout this revelation, and I think that's what's happening with him here. Again, for the first time. Again, for the first time, he sees and experiences what it was like before Jesus came and took the punishment we deserve and made available to us by his righteousness. Not by our own righteousness, not by the righteousness of our parents or anyone around us. John feels deeply what's missing. What's happening here? We're seeing here the effect of the bad news before we get to the good news. To understand the gospel, you have to hear the bad news. What's the situation? What's going on that we need a savior who dies on a cross? This is all the bad news. And there's no way of knowing how long John is in that state. We weren't there, and who knows how time works when you're in the throne room of heaven in ongoing eternal worship service. But, but he weeps for a while, and then it says, uh, an elder speaks up and says, weep no more, behold, circle behold if you're taking notes, because, again, that's one of the most common of, of directives in the book of Revelation. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one who is worthy, one who has conquered the lion of Judah. That's a title. What a cool title to give to your son. That was a title in Genesis uh, 49, verse 9, that Jacob gives. He had, Jacob had how many sons? Twelve, there you go. And, uh, and he blessed one of them, Judah, though. He said, gosh, Judah's got this great leadership. He's got this great spunk. He's like a, a young lion. And not like the little wimpy Simba, you know, sort of like, no, like, like, a, like a fierce lion, but a young one. Who's going to mess with a lion? Eh, cool. Nobody's going to mess with a lion. And that imagery of, of this lion of of Judah is this promise looking for far beyond a man's son, but to the son of God. And the root of David, well, that's a reference, we reference this at Christmas time, don't we? Isaiah chapter 11, that describes paradise that will come when the Messiah triumphs. It says when, when the root of David, that means the, the heir and the line, the royal line of David, and we see that from Jesus' genealogy, that it goes straight from uh, Adam to Jesus, it goes from Adam to David, to Jesus, that when he arrives, he will bring justice. It's so interesting when we think about salvation. Someone says, well, are you saved? So often we think, well, that means I'm going to heaven, right? Or are you saved? That means you, you gain. We have such a narrow view than what Scripture has, this broad view of salvation. Salvation is victory. Salvation is overcoming injustice. Read Read the prophets. Isaiah promises to the people what's coming when the Messiah comes is justice will come. Things will be made right again. So both Old Testament titles, both this this, uh, uh, line of Judah and the root of David, both these titles have to do with the prophecy of the Messiah who will conquer his enemies and judge them and bring order to chaos. The lion representing power and bravery and strength. 
And so the elder says to John, stop crying, John, wipe your eyes. One mighty lion is here, hallelujah. Now, now check out what happens. It's not on the screen, because we're going to spend all next week and the rest of this chapter, but see what happens in the next verse. John is expecting to see a lion. He says, look at the, the lion. John raises his eyes, and what happens next? What happens next is the most critical piece of this vision. We'll spend all next week looking at it. He looks to see a victorious lion, and he turns, and instead his eyes fall on a vulnerable lamb, a little lamb, one who, is still, who still bears the visible marks of violent death that he suffered. And we'll see that this lamb is actually quite, quite strong. He looks for a roaring lion. He sees a slaughtered lamb. The lamb conquers by going to the cross. The lamb overcomes by sacrificing himself. And from here on out, Jesus will be referred to as the lamb 27 times in the book of Revelation. Never again as a lion, always as the lamb. The, the, the strong, royal lion of Judah is the one who's worthy to open the scroll of history and, and the unfolding of these last days, but the picture is incomplete. That's all we have. The Son of God is worthy of the Father's delight, not only because he's the Lion of Judah, but also because he's the slain lamb. The Bible presents both, that Jesus is Lion and Lamb, strong and gentle, ferocious and intimidating, and gentle to draw children to himself. Now listen to this. He is both the heir and the executioner of the will of the Father. So John weeps because no witnesses can step forward to open the will. Only the lamb we will see steps forward, and only the lamb opens not one, but all seven of the seals. That's the part we're supposed to catch, because that would be so unusual. The will of the Father was written before anyone else was around. Since there's no one else around, it was just... Father and the Son and communion and joy with the Spirit. What we see in this uh, visionary form what the Scriptures also tell us, that the Father's plan was made before the creation of the world and was made for the Son, everything for his Son. So Jesus is the roaring Old Testament lion conquering as the slain New Testament lamb. This is the heart of our faith, my friends, the centrality of the cross. Christ overcoming his victory was through suffering. How we're going to see victory in our lives, how we're going to see something made sense of the craziness of our world, that we would put all of that in the category of suffering, is following the Lamb. He brings meaning and purpose, He brings calm in the chaos through a victory that is unseen in this world. Christian, your victory comes as you follow the way of the cross. That's why, again, we'll see this later in chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, John will write that Christians bathe, that their robes are dipped in the blood of the Lamb to be made white again as snow. In 14.4, 
the operating of the whole of the whole book follow the lamb wherever he goes who would follow a lamb into battle who's the king of the of the jungle who is the scaredy cat in the pasture god turns everything upside down he turns our world actually right side up at the center of reality is one who suffers to bring us home. Understand, we're never alone in our suffering. Say, no one understands. Yes, Jesus understands, and he is suffering for you. He has suffered and finished it all for you. We think about the loss on the cross, and we think about the anguish and the physical pain, but consider the emotional and mental and spiritual pain and suffering that Jesus went through. I don't even want to go into the description of, of the physical pain. We all consider that, but consider all the rest of what he went through, what he suffered, the loss that he suffered, to be separated from his father. The closer you are to someone, the more painful it is when you lose them. So I, I love David Miles. He's a brother in Christ. He's an amazing pastor. He's a great father and husband. We've been friends for a couple years now. And to lose him would be like losing my right arm. But if I lost my son, Jonathan, right? No offense. <laughs> None taken. Why? He's my son. Now consider a relationship in a way that we can understand that is eternal, father and son, for all eternity. And you say, no one understands what I'm going through? Jesus does. Followers of the lamb cannot avoid suffering. The closer you get to the lamb, the more your heart will ache for the suffering of other people. The more the suffering you've gone through can be used for the good of other people. And instead of focusing on weeping for yourself, your heart will break for others. That's just what happens when we follow the Lamb. Praise Him. The future is not up for grabs. He is worthy. And we'll see next time. When you, if you come back, if you, I hope you come back. I hope we'll be back as the Lord tarries. We'll see next time this Lamb who's conquered by what He has suffered approaches the throne and He takes hold of the scroll. And he starts to open that scroll and all heaven breaks loose. And there is, a, there is a worship service that we're going to see that's unrestrained and exuberant like none other. Let's pray. Lord, just as we take a moment to consider these words, I'm thinking of folks here who might be dealing with some very difficult issues, concerns, diagnoses, losses, worries. And we want to bring all of ourselves. We want to be an authentic community of faith where, where it's okay to not be okay. But, but Lord, more than that, we want to encounter you. I pray, Lord, this day, this Lord's day, the very same day of the week that uh, you gave John this vision and brought him into heaven, I pray, Lord God, that you would hear and answer our prayers. Prepare us, God, to receive a blessing from you today. To open our eyes to behold your glory. To follow in the footsteps and in the way of the Lamb. Amen.